Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing good. Got a good show today. Got Andy Weiner on. We do indeed. He is a triple threat. He is the member of the Toy Association board. He is the current chairman of the Toy Industry Foundation. And he is the chief advisor to Toying Around. And he's going to tell us about all of those. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. Andy, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm happy to be here. So why don't you start? You are an industry veteran. You were telling us 46 years in the business. Give us a little bit of background on you and the toy biz. Once upon a time, I started working for the Milton Bradley Company. That'll be this July. 46 years ago. And uh, believe it or not, I started in traffic and transportation. I was the uh, overshortened and damage clerk for the Milton Bradley Company, <laughs> which means that anything that got broke during shipments, I was the one that uh, responsible for uh, for taking care of the claims. Uh, it got my in and out of rail cars. Had a lot of um, interesting times working in the offices at Bradley. It was prior to the Hasbro days. Right. Uh, so uh, it was when we were independently owned and they moved me west. So they realized with the, the mouthpiece that I have that at some point I was the customer service and administration and ultimately they kicked me out in the field sales. And we ended up in St. Louis, first part of 1980, actually, uh, where I was um, a regional sales manager. And I spent my time with uh, Milton Bradley until I became the, the Southwest Regional and uh, I had responsibilities for Walmart stores, which at that point had like 250 stores. Had an opportunity to press flesh with Sam Walton at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning one morning when he offered to buy me coffee because I was the only person in the waiting room at that hour. I've had a great uh, run at it, and I, I went into business as an independent in 1983. Uh, the opportunity, though, was presented by an individual, a great gentleman that was one of my mentors, Dan Bucky, and actually my customers. The, they thought that I had an opportunity to have a bigger impact than just being a game guy. In the early 80s, uh, Asia was just opening up. Probably half of the companies in our portfolios were really young Chinese manufacturers. Many of them were OEM makers and probably the biggest one, which we still represent today. And I've represented Playmates since the early 80s. Tell us about what you're doing with the Toy Industry Foundation. I was always conflicted when the industry didn't allow toy reps like myself to actually be a member. So uh, some 10 years ago with Carter Keithley, I opened the door for a broader kind of description of who should or shouldn't be in the association. Ultimately got the association to amend its bylaws, let manufacturers reps in uh, at the same time or around the same time we, we opened up for licensees. And you know, now we've got uh, Nickelodeons of the world. So we're much more representative today of those people who have a life in the toy industry. After a year on the board, my experience in nonprofit uh, came forward, and I was asked to uh, consider being the chairman of the, uh, the association's uh, foundation. So uh, can you tell folks who may not be fully aware of the foundation, what does the foundation do? Over the last year or so, uh, since I've been leading the foundation and uh, we're looking at a very changing world, an association is going through its own pivots right now. The consolidation and the change of the way that we're all doing business, it profoundly affects everything. And certainly last year with COVID, many people had the ability to reflect on, wow, this really affects me. 
And what am I doing sitting here? And, you know, we're, even now, you know, many of us are blessed to have been vaccinated. And yet you look around the world and there are people who are, are hurting. So the original concept of the, the foundation was through the inventory uh, overage and such, the industry found a way to put some of that product to productive use by donating toys to kids around the world, or mostly in the United States. And, it's, and it really is a, it's a noble thing. But what this past year has shown us is that providing joy and comfort through play and toys is one thing, but sometimes children can't even get to the place of enjoying play or even thinking about it if they're hungry or if they have other basic needs. And as an association and ultimately a foundation that makes its living off of children, I think the opportunity presented itself that we as a foundation could take a much broader look at who we are for the association and really become more of a beacon of total philanthropy for the entire uh, association and all its members in the toy industry. It also allows us to um, better align and collaborate with all of our uh, vendor partners that have their own foundations, Mattel, Hasbro, Lego. And when we start talking to them about what they are doing, I'll, I'll mention Walmart as a foundation, Target has a foundation on the retail side. If we talk to them and we are doing that and ask them what they're doing as companies and then ultimately identify how we as a toy industry can partner with those foundations, we found that the opportunity to have a much greater impact across the country and actually represent a broader spectrum of our entire base. Because you've got, you know, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, not to, you know, to pick a city. Uh, there are small places where we've got Toy Association members, uh, but we may not have the ability to go in and touch those. But if we figure out how to get into those communities in ways that we can affect the children in those communities, we then can speak to all of our members as being really a foundation of everybody. And that's really where we're pivoting to this, this past year is to really be the foundation of the association for the association and it's all its members. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the programs that you have been doing that go beyond actually just donating toys, which I know you've done a lot in the past? So this year, we identified a need in pandemic year where there are places that we could put monies to work to provide some basic needs where it really is badly needed. We partnered with Mattel by making cash grants to the uh, city of Los Angeles school districts where we provided hot lunches for kids in that marketplace where they really hadn't, with the pandemic, get uh, the opportunity to get warm meals, you know, to get a hot lunch. You know, the only time they do that is when they're in school and without being in school, there was no meals. Uh, so we ended up giving uh, some $600,000 worth of pandemic grants to places where we were aiding children across the country in a very serious time. We've launched this year a uh, major initiative for the industry with the hospital. So we've uh, affiliated with the National Association of Children's Hospitals. Uh, we gave them a, a small cash grant. They went out and helped us write an RFP where we reached out to over 220 children's hospitals across the country and asked them, what do you need? How can we help you provide comfort, joy, toys? What, what is it that you need that, that from the toy association or from the toy industry that could make a difference? We got back 62 grants in our first effort. 
we funded 11 of them. And what were they asking for? What did you find that was important to them? Some of them needed one-time use toys. Uh, In some cases, we helped fund a number of the hospitals that we reached out to, which we never had the opportunity to before, are hospitals that are Medicaid was uh, pays for over 80%. So these hospitals don't get large outside funding from foundations. So there's some basic needs that we were able to provide them grash grants between ten dollars and $25,000 that even in some cases help supply a uh, child life special, but they didn't have. Is the cash that, that the foundation is, is using, is that uh, separate donations or is that part of the budget for the Toy Association? to fund uh, these kind of grants. One of the reasons why I hope that people who are watching today understand that these initiatives take money. And one of the unique opportunities that uh, we have as an industry is that being of the association before COVID, most of our physical expenses are covered by the association. When we raise money as a foundation, it goes directly towards providing comfort through whether it be cash grants or additional toys or what have you. The fact of the matter is, is that we will need to fundraise and actually go out and, and collect from our member associations. We, so we have an endowment. So we've got monies in the bank. And with the ability, with the markets being as good as they are, we've been getting some great returns. So we are pulling cash out of our, um, our bank accounts to pay for these. Well, the fact most people don't realize, but the um, toadies, the foundation is the primary recipient of any monies that come from the toadies. Uh, we're going to be looking to make the toadies a much greater opportunity for fundraising. But when we raise uh, cash out of the toadies, I think this year we raised something like $300,000. That goes back into the foundation that allows us to, to use those monies to uh, provide uh, cash grants. So right now it's a combination But one of the number one things that we will be doing in the next 12 months is actually designing a very comprehensive uh, strategic fundraising opportunities uh, across the industry so that we can and not just grant 11 hospitals. But if we have 62 grants and 59 of them were really worth funding, we want to fund all 59 of them. I know that you are chairman of the foundation. Do we have a new president yet? So we have an executive director. She comes with tremendous experience, was a CEO of Make-A-Wish uh, in the New York State area, has a profound, complex resume, and we're really excited to have Pam Mastroda start for us next week. I know she's going to jump in feed first, but what are, what are some of the things that, that she's going to be initiating as she takes the reins? after she understands the programs that we have in place and where we're going for programming as, a, as an organization to write a, a strategic uh, plan for the entire organization to look at the next three to five years. So that will take some time. But prior to that, and part of that is a strategic fundraising initiative, which should cover every aspect, individual donors, corporate initiatives, seeking grants, uh, a very comprehensive strategy that currently we don't really have that will satisfy the, the funding needs that we'll have for the future. So, Andy, in addition to all of this, you guys are implementing a huge diversity initiative. We're very excited to hear about that. Can you tell our listeners what they can expect and what it's all about? We as an industry have to take a hard look at how we as a collective group embrace the challenges that are, that are facing our country today about diversity. Our industry in whole is not hugely diverse. 
And so we stepped back and took a look and said, okay, what can we do? It's fortunate for us that Ellen Lambert, who is the interim uh, executive director, happens to be a nationally known figure that has done massive amounts of work across diversity and inclusion. She is actually staying on in a in an advisory capacity to continue to work with Pam, but literally lead an effort that is industry-wide. We're not just giving this lip service, but we're stepping back and we're, we're going to address this in the most sensitive and, and appreciative way that we want to do something that affects long-term and not just say, oh, we're touching diversity. We're talking to people who are recognized experts in the world of business, uh, education. And what we're looking to develop is a education, a mentorship, internship program across the industry that we can begin to address this problem of lack of diversity by actually touching young, diverse individuals when they're making decisions about careers. Our entire industry needs to look a little different. And part of that's because we've never gone out and showed the world what the toy industry is all about. And a whole, by the way, there's careers here. So we're looking at addressing that as a long-term project. We're being very thoughtful. There's been a statement of understanding made by all of the members of the committee. And the committee is made up of leadership from Lego, from Mattel. I mean, there's a, a wide range of people sitting on the committee. Uh, and we're going slow because we want to do an effective job that when we do roll this program out over the next year, we're doing it in a way that's thoughtful. It's going to be profoundly impactful for the industry. And there'll be a lot more to come on this. And honestly, uh, part of the great part of this program is that we're going to look to have internships and we're going to need partnerships across the entire industry to allow us to have access to companies uh, that give these young people a feel for the industry and then ultimately real jobs. Andy, you are a professional a sales representative. What has the pandemic been like for the sales rep community? Fortunate for, for toying around, Target is our largest client. And having been deemed an essential partner, their stores were open during the pandemic. Instead of being in the building at Target several times a day and meeting on and off all week and all month and you know every every all year, a lot of it's been drilled back down to uh, to Zoom conferences, um, and we've been able to trade on years of relationships so that we were able to get those Zoom conferences. So the, the biggest thing is that to me has has been access. Our business is still about feel, and so you can have a Zoom conference, but if you can't put a piece of plush or a doll in a buyer's hands, I mean, some of the heart of our business is is missing. And so you know, I think COVID has not stopped business. But certainly from the, the standpoint of being able to put some of the passion, I, I just think it, it has to have been missed. Andy, how has the absence of trade shows this year affected the rep community? You know, you've been a part of this industry a long time, too. Not having a gathering place, we don't know what we've missed. There are things in the past that, that happened in a, in a show that it's just the, the, the value of the gathering. You buttonholing me and saying, I want to show you something. Here, let me go three aisles over and let me show you something. You know, it's sniffing the, the heartbeat of the industry. It's actually, I think the first time I ever met you was at, probably at a trade show. And, you know, we've known each other now for I don't know how many years. But so to me, the, the industry not having a gathering place 
it's not what I know we missed. It's how many things have we missed because just the general organic energy that comes out of the industry gathering in one place and all the different characters being there is just missed. And characters is the uh, appropriate term. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) You said a very interesting statement, and that is the biggest thing we've missed without having shows is the opportunity cost. And it it may have been immense uh, in terms of what didn't happen. But it looks like things are going to happen. So how do you think Dallas is going to go down? Oh, boy, now you put me on a spot. That's what we do. That's what we do. <laughs> because I have the playground podcast. Because so breaking news here. Because one of the responsibilities that I have is I'm on the trade show committee for the toy association. So it's you got the right guy. Um, and I also I told you my relationship to Target. So about eleven o'clock last night, I got an email from my contact at Target that they will not be attending Dallas. That is. Big news. What reason did they give? Pandemic. Uh, as a corporate, and I believe it, uh, as a corporate entity, they still don't feel like they can allow their people to travel for what they consider non-essential. And so far, trade shows and uh, business meetings are not considered essential. The show where they believe that uh, Zoom and perhaps maybe in-person meetings in, in Minneapolis, but turning their people loose in hotels, restaurants, on the company dollar, I think that they're uncomfortable doing that. Now, they have indicated to me that they do expect to be in New York in uh, in February. And and will they be doing the foreign shows? Will they be at in Hong Kong? Will they be in Nuremberg, or is it too soon to tell? That would be speculation, because okay. it's a really good question. But I would tell you that, you know, if they're hoping the Toy Fair in New York is there, not every buyer needs to be in Hong Kong either. So I would suspect that if Target does anything, that they'll uh, assess essential need for product lines of private label and only go to Hong Kong where it's necessary. I have one more question for you, Andy. As you look at 2021 and into 2022, what do you think is most influencing the toy industry right now? I think we're really at a place now, and and my team um, believes this greatly, is that Toys R Us effect is really hitting the industry and the profound loss of a relatively open marketplace. The guardians of the gate, when you look at the Walmart, Target, and Amazon, it's a very different selling scope, uh, landscape than it was even just four or five years ago. And so, you know, without the Toys R Us, the, the, the new innovations, the, the, the young up-and-comers, there's no place to just go and at least get seen or have an opportunity to be seen. It's my belief and the belief of my colleagues that we really are going to struggle with some of the innovation and some of the smaller companies that just aren't, are just hard time getting through the door. And that may spawn a bigger direct-to-consumer because you can do that on the internet. But you know, then you talk about scale and you know, people sell things on the internet that you never thought you could sell at a price because somebody will buy it. So I just think that the marketplace is changing a lot in general. And uh, without Toys R Us, I think it's a, a industry that doesn't have that come see it here. But I've been concerned for years that we became much too much of a licensing industry. And then the other thing, just you know, to mention it, is that the complexity of managing, and this is from in, in the manufacturer's rep world especially, what I used to do by myself 
30 years ago, we had a team of six people. Uh, the idea of what it takes to sell an online retailer with consumer reviews and you know all of the components that go into you know even making a sale and even with Amazon, when I first started with Milton Bradley Company, we had early ship discounts because we filled the warehouses. You know, when you get an order from Amazon today, it may be for two or three hundred pieces to see how it, uh, all the uh, algorithms show them whether it's any good or not, and then you chase it into the future. That's a very tough model. I mean, it's changed uh, the way that businesses get funded, changes the way that we uh, are able to fundamentally finance our businesses. So this is a very interesting time. Okay, Andy, we're going to ask you the question we ask every guest on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret. So I always take great pride in the fact that I was been part of the turtles from the first launch to the last launch. I was sitting in a Holiday Inn in La Mirada, California. I think it was 87 was the first time I saw it. And I looked at the line and said, what? <laughs> you want me to sell what? <laughs> and, and my group, and I wasn't part of it, my group went to Target the very next day and we showed it to Target. And Target said, no way. And they were big supporters of Playmates as a uh, import company. They said, no way, we're not touching this. And I look back on that, and we were so close to like walking away from what's become an iconic moment in the toy industry, but it was literally hanging by a thread. Do you, I don't know if you've, if you've ever heard of a guy by the name of Jerry Sachs, sure. Sachs Finley. Jerry's a, just a brilliant guy. And, and if you knew him, he's, he was a, just a character of all. He was a classic toy captain. He said to me, kid, they don't get it. It's <laughs> funny. They don't get it. The kids get it. And sure enough, you know, ultimately, all of our judges, we as adults, whether we buyers or sellers or whatever, we forget in this business that it all comes down to what the kids have to say. And the secret for me is, is that I don't know nothing. And I, all I know is what I don't know. And kids know. And if we as an industry recognize that the kids know, we'll be okay. But we don't know nothing. That, that is great um, and so true. And Andy Weiner, member of the Toy Association Board, uh, chairman of the Toy Industry Foundation, and chief advisor to Toy and Around, 46-year veteran of the toy industry. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are top of mind and influencing the toy industry right now. And of course, we've been talking about inflation and we've been talking about dollar stores. And now, Richard, you've put them together. Yes, sir. It's interesting, Chris. I wrote about this in the disruption report number 22. And I wrote about the fact that Dollar Tree, of course, is everything's a dollar, and they are experienced, just as we all are, a meteoric rise in the cost of container prices, coupled with uh, changes in the exchange rate to the disadvantage of the American dollar, and just general inflation overall. And so how do you maintain a dollar price point in an environment like this? And, and one of the things I thought was interesting was Really, the rise of Dollar Tree took place during a time of historically low inflation for like the last 30 years. Folks who weren't around in the 80s uh, really don't know what it was like 
to be borrowing money to buy a house at 18%. Right. Well, suddenly, uh, Dollar Tree is seeing their business model challenge. And there's a great article in the Wall Street Journal uh, called How Dollar Tree Sells Nearly Everything for a Dollar, Even When Inflation Lurks. And, and things I found interesting was how they're coping. One of the things they're doing is they're increasing the number of units in a cart. That sounds fairly simple. But whereas they were shipping 24 in a carton, they're shipping 72 in a carton, as an example. And that is reducing their cost of shipping. They're also reducing their packaging. Right. That's cutting out costs. They're experimenting with products that are more than a dollar. I think this is very interesting because if everything in your store is a dollar, it certainly, I think, reduces your exposure to shrinkage because the number of units you have on the store right. should be the same amount as the number of dollars you have. Right. And it certainly does simplify things in terms of pricing and merchandising, et cetera. So now they're experimenting with some 3 and $5 items. And the other thing they're doing, Chris, is they're co-locating their Dollar Tree stores, in some cases with their family dollar stores. And for those who are out there unaware of Family Dollar, it's, it's, it's like Dollar General. They've always been very, very low price, but they've had various price points. These are the ways they're coping with inflation. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see if they can maintain their position as a, as a everything is a dollar store. Well, and I wonder if they really need to, because we do have Family Dollar out there where People don't expect to find everything for a dollar. So they're going to move the brand a little bit. And if you're still getting a good deal with what you get, the the dollar promise over time is not going to be as important. Well, five below certainly is well positioned. Right. Here in New York, there's a chain called Jack's, which has dollar stuff and which also has things for two or three dollars. So I do think that there's an opportunity to rebrand, and I think your consumer is going to go with you. The consumer is going to go with you if they're finding items that they want less expensively than they would find them at, say, Kmart. Well, Chris, just to kind of put it all in perspective, when I was a little, little, little kid, stores like Woolworths were called five and dime stores. Exactly. Because originally, everything in those stores retailed for a nickel and, or for a dime. Now, by the time we came along, that was no longer the case, but they were kind of the dollar stores of their time. And if you think about the song, We're in the Money, which of course I know you're thinking about, they go, what is it, a penny, a nickel? She goes, let me get the dirt off it. It's a dime. And then they go into, <laughs> we're in the money. <laughs> really fun. So inflation is not new. Right. Uh, the challenges from inflation are, not new, but they are new to Dollar Tree. Right. And it's going to be very interesting to watch this chain. And I think it could be a little bit of a canary in the coal mine for the, the whole retail economy. And and I think it's going to be fostering such things as reducing packaging, more things in a MasterCard. And it's kind of the opposite of that shrinkflation that we talked about a while ago. So that, you know, 72 in a carton instead of 48, that's actually saving money. Correct. As always, we're going to have to wait and see. But uh, and what I'm going to say to you, Chris, is don't nickel and dime me, man. I, I won't. But 
Got a dollar? Uh, <laughs> anyway, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, and marketing and media agency, Chiscom. And thanks for tuning in. Please share this with your friends and colleagues and hope you listen next time.